I haven't done this in so long. I feel like I forget how to do it, Jesus. It's going to be okay. It's like the first time all over. Well, this, this genuinely is the first time for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So you're not on your own. Um, okay. <clears throat> Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Rupture Radio, a weekly podcast offering a critical look at news, politics and culture from a left perspective. My name is Jessie Kelly and I am back again as host. I took a bit of a sabbatical but I could not stay away from Rupture Radio for too long so I'm back again. Um, this week we're joined by some of our regulars. We have Dave Murphy. Hey Jesse. How's it going? Um, we have Roisin is back again on the podcast. How are you, Roisin? Hi, Jesse. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Not too bad. Um, and we have special guests this week. Um, we have Jack Sheehan, who is a journalist, writer, photographer, and a PhD researcher from Dublin. Um, and you've recently been writing in a few different places. I've seen some articles pop up around. Maybe give us a rundown on what you've been doing, Jack. I'm very welcome onto Rupture Radio as well. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm not entirely sure I'd call myself a journalist, um, just because I think actual journalists might might give out to me for that. But um, yeah, I uh, I've been in a couple of places recently. Um, I was in the Baffler writing about um, kind of right wing Irish Americans. Um, most recently, I was in the Journal writing about the Moria camp in Greece and mm. the EU and kind of Ireland's complicity in that. Uh, I write a lot about you know, the right and neoliberalism and just fun, happy, cheerful stuff, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, with the thing about calling yourself a journalist, fake it till you make it, isn't yeah, exactly, it? Exactly, so yeah. you're, dress, you're a journalist dress for the now, job you want, published. not the one you have. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right, okay, so we have a um, good show lined out today, I think, tackling more news stories of the week. Um, but firstly, maybe go on to start with the good news. I think that's always the best way to do it. Um, the same week that Donald Trump became not the president of the US anymore, we had another good news story of 2020, which I cannot believe actually happened, um, where it seems as if there's going to be a vaccine sometime soon. Um, there seems to have been a breakthrough. Maybe, Dave, could you give us a bit of a rundown of what's going on? I know you wrote an article for the Rupture magazine, so maybe you can give us a bit of insight what's going on with the vaccine, because I've heard so many different stories as well. Like, some stories are like, yes, COVID is over, it's fine, everything's fine. And others are like, this is early stage trials, let's, like, I don't even know, yeah, so... Yeah, so Jesse, so like not only did like one vaccine arrive, three came all within the space of a couple of weeks. So you have Pfizer, uh, Moderna, and then apparently the Oxford um, vaccine is, is, is coming soon. Um, but they've all released figures in terms of their third stage, like the mass uh, testing stage, where they do between 30,000 and 60,000 um, tests saying that they have like between 90% to 95% um, like success rate. Um, but there's still further tests to do on it. Um, so like these are like initial figures and they're probably going to get emergency like passed into t- like mm. let them start using them. Like some of them could be rolled out before Christmas and then um, like more widespread in the new year. Um, but like there, there is still um, more tests to be done and like 
to make sure that the figures all like have to be um, peer reviewed. Um, but yeah, as you were saying, we have um, on our sister magazine, um, Rupture magazine that people can get at rupture.ie. Um, we plug, have plug, a plug, plug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we have a number of articles about this, and and I wrote an article on like big pharma and the search the search for a vaccine. Um, which went to print the day that the first announcement of a vaccine came out. Like, so Donald Trump thought he had it bad with them holding back yeah. um, news of the vaccine until the election was over. Um, Dave, you're I, demanding a recount of, yeah, I don't know I, what, like, vaccine trials. Who, who will think of a poor print magazine editor, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but uh, so, so like in the article, I did like a bit of research. So there's obviously people like who their day job is to look into this type of stuff. And when you're writing an article, you have to go and do um, an amount of research. But um, like there'll be people who will be saying that those on the left are like upset that a vaccine arrives so quickly. Um, but I think like we're absolutely delighted there's a vaccine. Like yeah. you have this virus going around, like affecting millions of people, causing like death. Um, and I think like why we were writing about this and why people should look at it is because like every government in like the advanced cap like so all like Western European governments and the US had all put their eggs in the basket of a vaccine being developed rather than taking an approach of, you know, like a zero COVID approach where you um have massive investment in uh test and tracing, massive invest investment in health. So like all our futures were tied in with the development of a vaccine. So from that point of view, it's it's good. But I think like the last paragraph in the article, I end on the point that like scientists and health professionals had predicted a a, a pandemic um of this nature coming um for a number of years and they you know, they'd basically been ignored. And I think like the point is like, well, they're predicting there'll be another pandemic like as environmental destruction um, increases that new viruses and pathogens uh, can be released. Um, and like, I think we got lucky in some ways with the coronavirus in terms of the type of virus that it was, that we had like treatments that existed already um, and that like it wasn't, John, if you think about like, we've all seen relatives or friends die in terms of like different illnesses they get and how they affect the body in that like with coronavirus it wasn't like this like instant mm -hmm. death where like you got it and you were dead quite quickly there was a period of um icu or there was a period where you you know become ill um but that's no guarantee that the next uh pandemic that comes along won't be you know like could it be something that affects the nervous system or you know like a much mm -hmm. more uh rapid one that affects the health really rapidly and causes like like a really high mortality rate and, and further deaths so I think you need to, like, what we were trying to do was um, look at the role of Big Pharma in terms of developing a vaccine. And, like, I think some of the stuff that um, we have in the article is, is quite shocking in terms of the power that they have over the development of uh, medicines and, like, the absolute lack of research and development that they actually do. Like, they're more like, um, it's just like, they're like any other corporation that just happens to make medicines like you know it's just like the route to profit just for them is that they actually just make medicines and i think um like if there is going to be like the point i was getting at in the article wasn't that there's not going to be a vaccine but that like we need to look at how like for human development and human health the resources are controlled and like even basic stuff like how like scientific research is funded and controlled 
And I think they're the stuff that we really need to look for, like in terms of um, like improving human health and improving uh, research so that like health can be like raised all across the board globally. And that if another pandemic of any sort does appear, that um, like we have the means to counteract it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like there was one thing you touched on in your article, Dave, that I found um, especially interesting was this thing about um, teams from the different companies not sharing information with each other because they want the full credit and therefore profit of it rather than sharing information and breakthroughs with each other to get to the vaccine in the fastest way possible. Um, and yeah, this like this greed for patents um, and it is it is quite scary in terms of, yeah, possible and probable future pandemics. Like, yeah, in the sense that we sort of, in, if you interpret it in a certain way, got lucky with this one. Um, like a thing that I've been reading about lately is um, the surge in antibiotic resistant diseases. Um, because like we're using essentially the same handful of um, antibiotics that like were the first ones discovered. Like a lot of them are the very same culture yeah. that's just been like bred and cloned over and over. Um, and apparently a huge part of the issue is that it's just not profitable to research. It's like, well, people take them for two weeks and then they stop taking them. Whereas if we make like diabetes medication or antidepressants, they're things that people take for months or years or maybe their whole life. Um, so it's just like there's no money in actually curing people just mm-hmm. in sort of like helping them manage, which can be great, obviously, but... It, like there's this huge hole for like acute treatments that is really going to come back and bite us if something dangerous crops up. Yeah, there's like there was th- that issue of data sharing. I think is really interesting because I keep he- seeing these news stories where they're like um, the the hacking crisis at the heart of the COVID vaccine race, and it's like Chinese and Russian hackers are stealing secrets on the vaccine, and. You're reading it and you're like, am I supposed to care? Like, if if, if a Chinese or Russian hacker were to steal (laughs) secrets from a pharmaceutical company and then use them to produce a more effective vaccine, like, like, oh no, the bottom line of AstraZeneca has been affected and all we got was an effective and quicker vaccine out of it, you know, like, it's such a weird, I've been, I've been using this quote like a million times since the start of lockdown, but uh, Jonas Salk, who was one of the people who developed the polio uh, vaccine back in the day, when he was asked about the patent, he gave the patent away for one dollar. And when he was asked about it, he said, I don't know how you could patent something like this. It yeah. would be like patenting the sun. Yeah. And it's just amazing that the distance we are from that spirit of whatever, not to be too corny about it or whatever, but like we're now in a situation where the headline is like, uh, 95% effective vaccine. Um, Pfizer set to make at least 17 billion in first year of rollout, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I think it was a quote from your article Dave, it was like they're racing against each other and not against the virus itself, like they what like the common enemy of everyone in the world right now is coronavirus surely because we're all trying we're all in the same boat as they keep saying to us, but like it's that's not the priority here at all. Like you said the priority is like making money and also like I think it is it kind of whips up that kind of like nationalism as well, I think. Like do you know um, like like the space race or whatever, you know, and like which country's better, which country will be the first country to do it, which country will like save the world sort of thing, you know, and they all want to be that country. Um, it's just grotesque because it's like, why would you care about your ego or your like nationalistic identity when this is like a crisis facing all humans all over the globe? Surely like, uh, yeah, well, I don't know. Like, I don't think 
I expect anything from Big Pharma, so I don't know why I'm like, surely they would have some sort of morals. Like, nope, <laughs> that's not true. Yeah. Look and, at the price of insulin heart in the grew state. three sizes that day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> their bank account. <laughs> uh, uh, I I think like on that. So um, like for these companies, they're like like the pharmaceutical industry is worth like I think like one and a half trillion or one point two trillion uh, a year. So for these companies. When, once they get a profitable product, for them to keep the patent on it, so no other company can you can copy that product, is really really um like that's where the money is for them. So like there's things called like you know like evergreen drugs or um where they they just essentially fiddle around with like the the formula for the drug. Say it's like a new you know like an improved version of the drug, and then they patent it again so that they they have exclusive rights to it. Um, but like that's not like when you think about all the facilities and all the wealth these companies have and all the like the scientists who are able to develop this type of stuff and these companies have control over them and that's the type of research they're doing rather than doing research that's like looking ahead looking how the human body interacts with stuff looking how you know i mean how they can actually solve like solve um different illnesses like so for instance like in the article um we have uh, built research and development. So that's what you'd imagine. Like, if you look at, like, what happened with this pandemic, like, every nation state, like, essentially um, took part in a public-private partnership where they pumped billions and billions of euros to these companies to essentially pay for the research and development. So we paid for this research and development. And then in return, they were going to give us, like, 100 million doses or 200 million doses and like there was no guarantee it would work so we were paying for the research and development and like even when there's no pandemic we pay for the, like 66% of the funding for research is provided by the public uh, like it's through our taxes that cause the fund it then this may be done in, say in universities where you have teams um, but then if they discover something then like big pharma come in buy the right to it put a patent on it and then they they profit here off it. So like yeah. we pay for stuff to be developed. Sold back to uh, us. Like. <laughs> and then they sell it back to us for twice as many. And you have situations then like with say in the NHS where they're rationing drugs like because or they're picking the most worthy patient to get it rather than saying, well, no, everyone has a right to health. Everyone has a right to um, like access to these drugs. And instead they're like, well, no, it's more profitable for us to like, there's some examples in the article of, and I think the one for people in Ireland that I remember most is or can be um, for cystic fibrosis. There was a big major campaign because this drug existed and you couldn't get it through um, the the Irish Health Service. So they had to have a big campaign. And then the company who develops the drug, uh, once the HSE signed a contract with them, their profits shot up by 46%. And like otherwise you would have had people like, you know, like, oh, this this can prolong your life, but it'll cost you like 500 grand or Mm. or whatever the cost of it was. Like, you know, it's just insane that we have developed this as like humanity, as people. We've developed all these sciences and these treatments and Mm. like it goes to the highest bidder. I I think it's also like another aspect of it that doesn't get talked about. I mean, I guess it does get talked about among circles like this, but the countries that have been most effective in having people not die of covid have done it through like primary community care strategies like Vietnam and Cuba and places where you know the the death rate has been vastly lower than Europe or America Mm -hmm. have mainly done it through the fact that they have a 
you know, a, a commitment to community healthcare. I mean, there's obviously, you know, a, a more authoritarian state has more power to control certain things. But like, if you look at Cuba, like they have a much higher number of doctors per person than we do. And it's no surprise that they managed to control it a lot better than anywhere in Europe did. And I think there's an obsessive focus in Europe and America on, you know, wonder drugs and the latest machines and investments and like a total you know winnowing of traditional grassroots medicine i mean there was a good article mm. actually in the new york times about why why the death rate had been so high in lombardy and in, in northern italy and one of the things that it concluded was that they had engaged in a 25 year program of privatization of the most profitable parts of the system and mm. neglect of the rest of it which is i mean no surprise to anyone living in ireland but you know, it's just, it's interesting to see how uh, widespread it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's interesting, like, internationally, because, like, one part that got cut from the article um, was um, about... <laughs> oh, is this uh, an exclusive behind-the-scenes <laughs> clip, Dave, well, is it? <laughs> no, no, so, so it's this idea that's, that's come up around, like, so uh, Jack was mentioning there how different countries have done it, like, and I think, um, like, one thing that's, like, been like the talking point, say in previous generations, the state would have played a key role. And as we were saying this time, they're relying on private companies. So rather than having like the global response, you know, that like they'll talk about in terms of when there's a war or whatever, where, you know, like uh, nations come together, like all the countries like, like basically had their own path. Like if you look at like the US, they just went around buying mm-hmm. up as many um, possible vaccines as they could. The British did the same the EU did the same so there was no like global response it was like like this process that we've talked about like we've been talking about like globalization taking a hit over the last you know like five or six years in terms of it's not as you know like there's been a rolling back on it and like the idea that like all these countries couldn't come together in terms of a global response that they all um looked after their own self-interest like that's like a further sign of like the split in terms of you know like the bourgeois international uh, community mm-hmm. um, and like like even the G20 which is like you know like the 20 richest nations come together like in April or May they had a meeting where they were supposed to come out with a statement on coronavirus and the vaccine all this type of stuff and like apparently like the communique that was to be issued was prepared but then like it was just infighting between all these uh, different states I think particularly like they were trying to blame like the US and Trump like but there's obviously like different you know, like different interests yeah. between all these different countries, like. And then, what what do people think it's going to be like when the vaccine is actually like in effect and people can get it and stuff like that? Like again, is it going to be different in every country? Is it going to be like bringing it back to the first episode of this podcast, Dave, when we talked about um, contagion? Is contagion, it going to be like yeah. a lottery? <laughs> like, I know the plan. I've read in a few things that they're going to give it to like people who are at risk first and kind of stuff like that. Um, but like. Surely there's going to be a bit of, you know, if you have enough money, you can get it ahead of people. And like, I would imagine stuff like that. And I'm, like, I'm kind of imagining it like, you know, you're going to have to carry your vaccine pass with you as you like go anywhere and stuff like that. Or I, I don't know what it's going to look like. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, what do people think? I'd just like to point out that um, in Contagion with their lottery, the first, you know, they do it by birthday. And the first date that comes out is my birthday. So well, I will be fine. Roisin, you're grand. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> No worries for you. <laughs> I keep seeing these like TikToks. I don't know if anyone has seen them. Um, this is also something to talk about when we're talking about vaccines, but like anti-vaxxer 
TikTok is like a weird place to be <laughs> and it's like these really dramatic videos of like um like no voiceover but like just like really dramatic music and then like the subtitles of what the people are saying and it's like they play different roles in the thing and it would be like me refusing the vaccine it would be like but we have to kill you if you don't take your vaccine and she was like that's okay with me and then it's like her at the gates of heaven and god being like well done you've passed the test and stuff (laughs) i've just been like watching this stuff and i'm like what is it gonna be like when the vaccine's actually out i don't even know (laughs) well apparently like a tour of people i think was in the eu or the uk have said like they have doubts over like getting the vaccine yeah and I think like that's why like the whole process of like how it's tested has to be like transparent, has to be clear course, that yeah. it's been done properly. And then I think access to it is the, the other key point because like if you look at how much like they've messed up stuff like testing, tracing, all the other aspects of this um pandemic, the idea that you're going to like that they're just suddenly going to like fluke uh, a major success <laughs> in terms of being able to roll this out. And I think like the idea that there's three vaccines and they're saying like this is a 90% rate, this is 95, this is 97. Mm-hmm. Like is it going to be like where like if you're from like if you're working class you get like the one that's 88% successful and then well, if you can yeah. pay you, you can pay privately for the 97% one. Um, mm. Like I don't know but I think like some of the anti-vaxxer stuff is mad like that we're getting microchips. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean I, I I've decided to become a vaccine optimist um, just because I was not an optimist about anything else so uh, I, I, I have this kind of semi-stupid theory that Ireland is going to have an easier time with the vaccine than other places, because I think people forget that we actually have very few people in the country. And so, like, mm. vaccinating a country of 358 million is probably going to involve, like, a patchwork of vaccines. And it's like, oh, you get the second-rate Oxford vaccine that we had down yeah. the side of the couch. And I suspect Ireland <laughs> will just be, you know, the whatever the most or second most successful one is. There'll just be some sort of purchase scheme of four or eight million doses. And, mm. You know, like Ireland is kind of the size of a big city. Yeah. You know, yeah. well, I saw a meme mm. on ISF, Irish Simpsons fans, and it was like um, me and my mates after we get the vaccine just because we want to have pints. We don't give a fuck what it does to us. And it's like, you know, all of them with like one with three eyes. Like, yeah, yeah. what's your like favourite to like, form? <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't give a fuck as long as I get to go to the pub. I, I'll take whatever vaccine is going. <laughs> La, did, I saw the meme where it's um, Bart as a, as a baby holding on to the side of the cot, like, and it's Pfizer his home are pulling yeah. away and like Bart is like people working from home being dragged back to the office yeah. like, you know? oh man I'm really feeling that I'm like do I want it to end I don't know <laughs> but yeah I don't know I think there's a difference between like people who are anti-vaxxers um, and who are like r- like raging a campaign against this um, from the day one and then people who are maybe I don't know genuinely sceptical and kind of like it is a big unknown thing just to kind of put your trust in people like you're saying Dave obviously they're not gonna the chances that they like fuck up this vaccine after the world dies on them is very little but it'd be like children or men you know that film where there's like one baby left baby Diego <laughs> oh, like you know it's like we'll, we'll all get <laughs> do, the vaccine do, do, I know, like, do I know children and men have I watched children and men three or four times in the last six months you know <laughs> <laughs> baby Diego yeah. yeah that's sort of a thing that I I have on my mind as well that like people won't just get tired with the anti-vaxxer brush for like yeah mm. having questions or being a bit maybe like suspicious or unsure or unconvinced or whatever because I think we even talked about it on a previous episode it was something that happened 
basically anyone who had questions or concerns or issues with like the government response to COVID was like in the far right. <laughs> it was sort of decided yeah. they got lumped in. If you went to a protest, you were like this and that and that. Um, and I think it's like, you know, like there's been a little bit of talk about like informing people. Yeah. So that like there it would be a transparent process so that they would be a bit more reassured about vaccines. But I think in doing so, it's so important as well to inform GPs so that they can inform people, but also inform them about this like hesitancy that people have and just to help them be a little bit more sympathetic to it and not just like jump to conclusions and accusations. Yeah. And I mean, I think like honestly, uh, you know, the. There could be, if it was done right, there could be real positives to something like this. I mean, if the if there if the vaccine is indeed as effective as everyone's, you know, as they're saying, and there is some mass rollout program where it's given out free, and you know, there's not immense personal cost on the on the the person, and it is effective, and it does halt this virus, like that can be a moment in everyone's lives that's remembered, and that could have very positive effects in terms of like beating back anti-vax sentiment with regard to any other vaccinations, mm-hmm. you know? Big vaccine parties. And you say you're not an optimist, Jack, did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you caught me in a good mood this evening, so it's all, yeah. it's all smiles and sunshine. Yeah, vaccine party sounds good, though. That's <laughs> Vaccine rave, like... <laughs> It'll be like Italian 90, like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Italian ninety percent. There's my joke. Ah, <laughs> have you seen some of the conspiracy theories going around? Um, I saw on Twitter. Apparently, some pubs and Temple Bar have put up like this one of these nonsense things that's referencing like the Magna Carta, like King John in, in twelve fifteen, like and they're claiming rights from the Magna Carta, like you know. What? That, yeah, yeah. They're saying like the government have no power because the Magna Carta, like you know. It's a deep pull. Uh, oh okay. God. One of one of my great fascinations is like there's a very specific strand of far right thinking called free men on the land, oh, and they say that yeah. like uh, no law is valid except common law and maritime oh, law. Mar- right. <laughs> did, did, did you see? There's um, some great videos in, you can you can watch. On <laughs> in, in in the US last week, uh, there's like a version of them. Um, do, do you know with the QAnon? So mm. there's like they're saying this woman had her kids taken off her by like the social protection over there, and there was a guy who was like basically a freeman of the land type fella, and he was advising her, and like she ended up trying to kidnap the kids and all this type of stuff. But oh, then like she yeah. turned up and murdered him then because like she became convinced that he was part of like the the plot against her like this, you know yeah. but like yeah he was a he was one of these freemen and he was giving out legal advice to her and it all went uh, downhill fairly quick oh my god i love getting all the conspiracy news from you dave always- i mean the, the good thing about talking about it is that we can't be sued by the free men on the land because they don't recognize the court structure there you go unless we're at sea i better check the latest issue of the magna carta yeah. like when was the last update <laughs> What's the, what does it say about libel laws <laughs> um right okay yeah so fingers crossed let's all be optimistic and let's hope this vaccine goes smoothly and we can all be Normal we can record again. in person together. Oh my god, that sounds weird. <laughs> I can't weird. imagine how that would go. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. Moving on to um, the next thing we're going to talk about is not so ch- nice thing to hear during the week. Um, it was this news story about the image-based sexual abuse and um, the the finding out of the server online 
that basically has thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures of young women and girls and some of them are underage, um, nude photos, photos of, you know, private photos. Some have been leaked from OnlyFans, some have been leaked from people sending them to people privately and then them leaking it. Um, but yeah, it seems to be like a developed network of men gathering, collating, um, collecting these pictures to have on a forum. And yeah, I am absolutely just sick to my stomach all this week just hearing about it. Um, it's just absolutely gross. And I don't know, the response as well has been really pissing me off as well. I don't know, like, first of all, I think calling it revenge porn, I just think is just not right at all because like it implies that revenge has to be taken for something that these women did, which obviously is just not right at all. And like I saw Paul mention it in the doll to um, Leo and his response was like, yeah, well, I, I think it's definitely wrong for someone to share like private pictures of someone as revenge. But like he didn't say that it's actually just wrong in general to share pictures of people without their consent. Like, do you know, that's actually the point here, you know? Um, so now there's a petition that has over I, I haven't checked it recently but I think it's over like I think it's nearly got 50,000 now I think that was the goal of it um and yeah basically calling for this to be an actual crime um which it should be I like for me it's just so straightforward I don't know yeah what do people think yeah I mean the whole thing is just so awful and seedy and insidious and like the deeper you dig the worse it is like yeah you sort of yeah you mentioned like even the term, yeah, revenge porn is so weird where, yeah, it's like as if like it's the victim's fault, like they needed to to get what was coming to them or something. But it's exactly, also yeah. even deeper than that. Revenge implies that you know them where like loads mm -hmm. of these women are like in changing rooms and don't even know people are taking pictures of them. Like like most of the people sharing this don't know these women. And even like yeah. the word porn as well, like obviously a lot of it is used mm -hmm. as that. That's sort of what the whole like uh, the whole point of sharing it online is. But like a lot of it is from these settings that are totally non-sexual. Like, yeah, like changing rooms or like, you know, there was um, a well, a better known case in 2017 of Dara Quigley, who um, was naked in the street, but she was suffering from a psychotic episode which is like an incredibly traumatic thing to happen to you. It's not remotely sexual. And then this video got out because a guard went and found the CCTV footage, deliberately rewound it so he could record it onto his phone, shared that with other guards on WhatsApp. And then the whole thing ended up getting shared, I think, like over 125,000 times. And mm -hmm. Quigley ended up committing suicide a few days later. Whereas the guard who did it never faced any charges, despite the fact that guard management actually did rule that it was in a breach of um, data protection law. Mm -hmm. And to add fucking insult to injury, um, they never identified him, presumably because they didn't want to publicly humiliate him, which is a lot better than can be said for fucking Dara Quigley. How like. they treated her, yeah. I think, uh, you know, I'm no expert on uh, this, to be honest, but I think Roisin what you said about Derek Wigley gets to the fact that, like, I don't... Th the scariest thing for me is I don't know what institutions you would use to tackle this kind of problem, because mm -hmm. it seems like 
a lot of the institutions that you would normally rely on are so inadequate or themselves so compromised that it's hard to see what good you can do with them. Like there are calls to criminalize this kind of activity, and I, I think that's you know that's that's right. But the people that you would be relying upon to enforce it are the guards, the judiciary. And I don't think there's a huge amount, I mean, from that story, you know, it was, it was obviously horrible, and I remember it at the time. And there's not a huge lot of, amount of confidence among a lot of people in this country in the judiciary either, when you look at, like, very high-profile abuse cases of the last few years. And I don't know if we have the sort of, like, non-state or non-governmental community ability to uh, deal with this kind of thing either. And I, I guess this is not very optimistic, but it just does kind of scare me the inadequacy of response measures that any of us actually have access to. For sure, yeah, exactly. Like even if you look at something like um, rape or sexual assault, which is criminalized, um, how many cases go to court? First of all, how many cases when they're in court actually get a conviction? Like it's, I think it's like seven percent of cases actually go to court in the end. Because um, obviously, you know, we've seen. Like I saw a tweet being like, in the last five years, I've seen the rugby um, scandal with the, you know, the guys from the rugby um, and the whole sexual assault there. The what, the person who was in, um, her knickers were held up in court, you know, to show that, you know, it wasn't actually rape and blah, blah, blah. Then there's been like the mother and baby home seal up. There's been this, like, there's just been like one thing after another. And it's like, like you're saying, like, yes, criminalize this, obviously, like it needs to be a crime. Like it, it's crazy that it's not. And I actually read somewhere that it's um, apparently like Ireland is specifically being targeted because it's not a crime and because of this like legal loophole that it's actually totally legal for them to do this. Um, so I think like I've heard, I was reading that some of the men involved with collating these images aren't from Ireland, but they've like um, chosen Ireland as the place to do it because of our ridiculous like lax laws on it. You know, it's like crazy. Yeah, no, it's like, it's insane. And uh, apparently like, yeah, a lot of the people sharing it, yeah, are like targeting Ireland specifically. But also there's a real atmosphere of like bragging mm-hmm. about this access. Like I think one article said that it was like these are images that are treated as like trading cards. Mm-hmm. Um and it's like it's obviously absolutely foul. And then it's like it's also such a thing of like, you know, when I was a teenager I had a lot of friends who were guys and it was like not to that extent, but I could see that getting normal amongst like lads having the banter sort of thing especially when it's like she's your girlfriend or then you break up Mm -hmm. or blah 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 and it sort of like snowballs into this awful thing and there's also this thing that like I would see with like younger brothers of mine where they are uncomfortable with certain things but then they're like a dry shite or like they're gay or like and you don't really know how to speak against your peers um and I think Mm -hmm. also even if you are one of the peers, like I'm talking about young people, like obviously there's adults who are doing this who have no fucking excuse, it's despicable. But in terms of young people who maybe don't realise like the consequences of what they're doing, because I think it's like, it's sort of like you can't see the woods for the trees. Like I had a male friend of mine recently explain to me like it took him so long to grow up and realise that like James Bond is a serial rapist or that like, you know, like, like, like just because girls in bikini magazines all look like they want to fuck you doesn't mean every girl in a bikini wants to fuck you like and it is such a like 
like obviously women are the victims of rape culture but when you as a man grow up in it you can't necessarily see it unless there is something put in place to explain it to you and to go like look I know you think this and take it for granted and think it's okay but this is why it's not and that's what's totally lacking and yeah like Jack said there's no like there's no institution you can go to but there's also no one to explain this to you and stop it like punish people for doing it or stop it from happening from the ground up Mm-hmm. But I, I think like this idea about Ireland having no laws on it, like this is like, like because this isn't like it's the first time something of this scale has has happened. But like over the last few years, there's, there's been numerous cases like there's the, the Derek Quigley case, but there's been people who've like had images put online who've gone public to try and get them taken down. And like uh, there was a bill produced that's mm-hmm. just been sitting on like, like a shelf somewhere without being actioned. Um, and I think like that's like reflective of like the whole Irish state's approach to anything to do like obviously big tech companies are a big driver of um of GDP in Ireland like so mm-hmm. like the Irish state and the government have no idea how to introduce any rules or regulations around this and that's why like a lot of them come here because we don't have any rules or regulations and this is like one of the the natural effects that people who are intent on doing this type of thing will look to Ireland then as the hub from which they can you know uh, uh, do this stuff. Um, but I think like like Roshin was making the point there. So like I'm thirty seven. Jesus, don't have to tell. Um, no, no, but, but like, I thought no, you were twenty four. No. So um, <laughs> like so when I was young, like when I was like sixteen or seventeen, like text messages were new. Like you know, so like the idea of like that there was there was all these like you're doing videos or whatever like was just like didn't exist. Um, but like. I think like there's two things from that like one is like like young people need to have like full sex education like this thing needs to be talked about with young people and that's like the, that's like the key thing like we've been pushing for the um sex education mm-hmm. bill and the doll like you know so that it's like people actually get like you know like this is like um like proper sex education and how it's like you know like technology etc um like and that needs to be something that like is brought up like you know um, but also I think like it's like it's all about like it's it is rape culture and it's like men like the idea that like stuff is called revenge porn like mm-hmm. you're getting revenge on a girl presumably because she broke up with you therefore you're like yeah well look this is what I'm going to do like because yeah. like your little hurt feelings like you know well, I think it like I think it like it all boils down to like the idea of consent you know and like that's what is is not translated in law and it's also not translated in like a societal um, norm you know like I think like, first of all, just having it not illegal in the first place obviously is, like, really bad and that should be changed, like, immediately. But then I think the problem's obviously, like, wider than that, like like pe- people are saying. Like, um, the whole idea that I heard, I saw some people posting about it being, like, yeah, it's obviously really bad to post images of women, like, when they don't want it. Um, but the women who posted on OnlyFans, their nudes for people to, like, purchase, who subscribe to see them or whatever, they that's not bad because like they put their nudes up on the internet anyway. And it's like, no, it's the same. It's the exact same. It's still non-consensual. It's still breaking like that consent. Like it's, it's no way different. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think that was like, people still weren't getting it. Like I saw a couple of tweets being like, yeah, this is bad. But if you put your pictures of yourself naked on the internet, well then you kind of, you know, you get what's coming to you sort of thing. And it's like, no, these women are putting their pictures up on this only fans website because people are subscribing to them and only people who subscribe with the money are able to see it. And that's the whole point of it. You know, it's breaking that consent. And like, I think it speaks volumes. I saw there 
that apparently the day after this whole thing broke, the trending search on Pornhub in Ireland was leaked nudes, Irish teens leaked nudes. Um, so like that means it wasn't just this group of 500 men or whatever, you know, it was, it was, it's society, it's a societal problem. Um, and yeah, people might condemn it and stuff like that, but like, you know, to see something like that, like trending on Pornhub, it's absolutely just disgraceful. Like, you know, I I think that's kind of one of the scariest things for me, like, because I think, and I hate to sound like, you know, I'm 90 years old and talking about how terrible the internet is, but it does allow this sort of like alienated violence where, you know, you don't have to be standing in front of someone to to cause them harm. You can just kind of pass something on, just be a, a carrier for 10 seconds, see a video, pass it on and not even really think about it. And that mm. action added up to a thousand other actions causes like immense harm and destruction. And I, and I think, you know, it's hard to know exactly what to do about that, but there definitely is an aspect of it that is that sort of technological alienation that just allows you to unthinkingly... I mean, some people obviously are doing it fully intentionally and, mm. and maliciously, but it also allows a much wider circle of people to just casually partake in a, a much wider, you know, uh, amount of violence. Yeah, and I think, like, what's interesting is, yeah, it totally alienates you when you're doing it. You sort of, like see far less harm or it's far more abstract or it's just a minor thing or the people aren't really people but when it happens to you even in like slightly more Mm. innocent forms it's really distressing like sort of like jesse you were making the point of how like just because somebody puts something up on OnlyFans doesn't mean it's a fucking free-for-all and interestingly like i remember a few years ago there was a lot of cases um and it happened to people i knew as well of like people's photos being taken from Facebook and like, you know, the like random people making their profile again. And someone would like, a friend would text them and be like, did you make another profile? Because they have all of the same details, all of the same photographs, they're using your name, blah, blah, blah. And they're sending out these things. And people felt really frightened and violated. It's like, that's people Mm -hmm. taking your pictures from Facebook. They're staying within Facebook. And these are not even like, you know, more intimate things or like, you know, like Facebook is a semi-public medium whereas only fan is like yeah it's like subscription and blah 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 and it's like if that freaks you out you should see why this is a problem and why it's not like oh but sure they were up there anyway mm-hmm. but again it's like the question of like bodily autonomy as well you know it's like i consent to put my f- pictures on only fans i do not consent for anyone else to look at them who doesn't subscribe to my only fans that's just as simple as you know what i mean that like it should be as clear cut as that like you have the right to do what you want with your own body with your own whatever pictures data whatever it is um and for anyone to take that and use it in a way that you didn't consent to then it's non-consensual sexual abuse like do you know like that's just like the basis of it like i yeah um i don't know i thought it was ironic as well that it happened like in an international men's day on the same day and stuff like that and like i did see (laughs) people being like this is why we shouldn't have international men's day and it's obviously it's not that either but like rather than maybe like i don't know I do, like it's a hard one to get around because as soon as you say anything, people are just like, "What about International Men's Day?" And it's like, "Well, it's today." So, <laughs> but um, <laughs> like I don't know. I think it's a thing of like that should be the focus of International Men's Day, the societal problem that we have. Like, and it's not just men who don't understand consent. Like women do as well, and that's the thing as well. Like if you don't even know when your consent is being violated, that's also a difficult thing as well. Do you know what I mean? I think like I had a friend who used to volunteer doing 
some of those consent courses in the universities and stuff like that. And she was saying like, you would be so shocked at how many people do not understand what consent means, like in any way, do you know? Um, so like if, it's a massive problem that needs to be tackled like societally, like you're saying, Dave, about like sex education in schools and stuff like that. But we shall move on to the next subject, maybe. Um, I, we're going to link the petition in the um, episode description, obviously. So if you haven't signed it already, please do. Um, and yeah, um, hopefully now the government are going to look into it. I saw that, yeah, Leo's response was like, yeah, this is awful. I don't know. Is it a law or not? That's what he said to Paul back. He was like, oh, I'll have to check to see if that is a law. And Paul had just told him it wasn't. So like, we need to make that a law. But anyway. Nice. Yeah, um, sorry, I'm just going to swallow some of my rage as we <laughs> move on to the next story. <laughs> Although I'm still raging about the story as well. So, um, yeah, the postgrads um, who are organizing together now to get more rights, workers' rights and stuff like that. Um, I didn't even know this was a thing. Like, I, I didn't even realize, like, how badly treated postgraduates, um, like PhD students are being treated Um but maybe, Jack, you have a bit of insight in this as a PhD yourself. So maybe you could fill us in a bit on what's going on. Yeah, and apologies to anyone who has ever had a pint with me has heard exactly this speech before. But um, <laughs> I mean, for the first thing I'd say is, you know, this is just my my own personal um impressions of being a postgrad um i would encourage everyone to read the recent three-part series in the journal by i, I believe maria delaney uh it's the noteworthy investigations and it's mm-hmm. it's just about uh postgraduate life and the sort of exploitation of, of labor that goes on um it, it outlines what i'm saying basically in a lot more detail and it also goes into the kind of genders um and and you know the diversity issues around uh, academia as well but i mean just from my own perspective i think most people if they knew what the average phd student's life is like they'd be very shocked yeah and i'd be kind of one of the more fortunate ones um, that's the thing because i always think people in academia are like you know have it made or whatever i know this yeah. isn't true because i am friends with people who do phds so i i, I was aware that it, that is not true but you do have that idea of like the monocle and like you know yeah. oh yeah let's no, discuss our I mean, papers I, and <laughs> it's it, i think i think a lot of it i mean my, my poor mother is always, was always telling me to do a phd she's like oh you'd be such a good professor i'd be like chance would be a fine thing but um yeah. <laughs> you know i think the reason the reason that this is is often interpreted like this is like not to get too historical about it but in the 70s and 80s not just in ireland but all around the world there was a huge expansion of higher education and so there was a lot of a lot more positions available, basically. So if you did a PhD back then and you wanted an academic job, you probably got one. And it was, you know, a tenure track position that was, you know, I mean, they're not that extravagantly paid, but they're mm-hmm. they're well paid, you know, professional managerial type jobs. Um, and the the you know one of the things now is that they barely exist anymore, and they've been increasingly replaced by temporary contracts and um just you know phds themselves teaching and these postdocs um you know um that are often temporary and and less well funded and you know when you're doing a phd for the four years an awful lot of people have no funding at all um i like i have what's what's called full funding which comes out at sixteen thousand euro a year which is about four grand less than minimum wage um and like 60 grand a year puts me in a relatively fortunate position compared to other PhDs mm-hmm. and it's still unmistakably poverty. Um, so most PhDs will 
spend an awful lot of time teaching. Um, they'll spend an awful lot of time applying for small amounts of money. I don't think anyone realizes how much admin there is in PhDs. Applying for like the Eustace P. O'Shaughnessy Award for Irish American Excellence that gets you 375 euro if you hand in like a 300 page document. Um, It's just there's so much of that that goes on and that's all supposed to be being done in addition to to the research that you're doing. In terms of the teaching itself, it varies from institution to institution, but generally you will only be paid for the hours taught, even though you might be teaching an hour long class uh, four times a week. But in order to teach that class, you have to do another 10, 15 hours of preparation and often you Mm -hmm. won't get paid for that. Um. Yeah, I mean, it, it, what it all equals out to is basically that you are a precarious worker. You know, like you you operate in the same way as like a I don't know, like you know, like an Uber driver or a delivery uh, driver or something. And the work itself is probably more pleasant, but the amount of compensation you get is is tiny. There's also you know, you're not paying into a pension fund. You're not don't get any of the other benefits that that you would even in a you know an entry level admin job somewhere um which means that you know you kind of you also come out at the end of it maybe at 28 or 31 or 40 and your job prospects are pretty poor and you also you know even if you start a different job outside of academia it's uh you know you're you're at a massive salary disadvantage and everything else Mm -hmm. i could talk for hours about yeah, like, I don't know, it seems to me that this is just um, across the board becoming more and more of a thing that we're supposed to accept that, you know, you work for experience or you work to learn or um, you don't need to survive on money. You can learn so much that you'll be fine. Like, you know, it's crazy. Like, um, obviously, like internships and stuff like that, you know, and like, oh, what about the experience you'll get and stuff like that. And what it seems to me is that, like, from reading about it, workers like have a certain amount of rights and stuff like that obviously we'd prefer if they had even more but these postgrads who are doing lecturing are not considered as workers that's what i was looking at when i was looking at the note noteworthy um investigative cover piece on it or whatever and it asked all of the universities for um like confirmation of how many postgrad students they have working and what they're getting paid and stuff like that like the majority of them were like, well, they're not on the HR um, list because they're not employees, they're students. So we can't give you that information. And it's like, but they're lecturing, they're working. Like, I don't understand how that works. Like, it's, it just seems mad. Like, I mean, it, like, if I could get one thing to happen, it would be for everyone to accept that PhDs are, are workers, you know, mm-hmm. and, and even for them to accept themselves. Like, you will still get PhDs that you talk to and, they view themselves first and foremost as students. And I think it's a really unhealthy thing to do at the age of, you know, 25 or whatever to accept that you're getting some sort of primarily what you're getting is training when what you're primarily doing is working. You are adding value to the university by researching and you're teaching the kids of, you know, to, to hundreds of thousands of people in this country. And, you know, you'll get an awful lot of people like under any news story about PhD. So it'll be like, oh, farewell you know, whatever to them, you know, they chose a comfortable life of PhDs. And I don't think people understand, if we walked off the job tomorrow, no teaching would get done in colleges. Yeah. Like, almost all the seminars, labs, tutorials get done by TAs, PhDs. And if they went on strike tomorrow, universities would grind to a halt. Mm -hmm. I know, I, like, 
I didn't know whether to laugh or roll my eyes or cry or what when um, uh, I watched all of it together. Paul addressing (laughs) all of them at once. It was a very strange noise um, (laughs) when Paul was like mentioned it to the Taoiseach and himself was like, well, when I was doing my PhD, I I didn't see myself as a worker. And it's like, okay, we're not like... Yeah, like talking cool. stories. It's not about <laughs> literally just you. There, you are aware there are other people who have different experiences of life and the world. Like you know how that works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you remember he did that, did that before as well when people were talking about a house, and he was saying, "Oh well, when oh, I was well, a my parents doctor, gave me a house. yeah, I bought a house," and it's like, great. <laughs> Good only for you. But can we talk about this thing? million me over acres in the country, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's like, so like this would be a continuous, so like I would have left, oh jeez, I feel so old today. I would have left college <laughs> in, in 2007 um, after I'd taken five Ancient. years to do a, a three-year <laughs> degree. Um, so um, like this would have been an issue at the time as well, like, you know, so like this is obviously like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not like an accident or something that's just recently happened. This is part of like the plan, like, you know, that it's like um, you have PhD students doing work. Um, and that's posed as like experience or or whatever, like teaching hours type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but also then broader beyond the like the like PhD students in terms of like full time job positions within universities, like that people don't get like permanent positions anymore. They get like contracts or to deliver courses. Like I, I like I've heard some people talk about semester contracts rather than like a, an academic year. Like it is important to say that like the universities are hugely at fault for this, but the government are also in that there yeah. has been a hiring freeze and like a hiring cap on full time staff in higher education. I, I think at least since the recession, and I like I could be wrong on this, but I think while other hiring caps like in the civil service or the defense forces or whatever they got lifted in around two thousand and fourteen or two thousand thirteen. And the one in higher education never did. So, like, you have these universities that are highly, highly dependent on precarious and, like, as you say, Dave, semesterized work, where you either get paid hourly or you get paid to deliver a course with no guarantee that you'll get a course next semester. And partially, universities like it because they like paying less and they like the flexibility. But it's also partially the fact that they're hitting their caps in terms of the people that they're allowed to hire. Um, like this, this just it like some parts of it seem like a fairly straightforward fix if you had a government that wasn't uh, committed to precaritizing absolutely everything, everything in yeah. the world. Yeah, and like it's like um, yeah, like I think the what you're saying there, like like th- there is no idea that you go and you do a PhD and you go into academia or whatever, like you know. But and like that's like the common perception. So like in the comment sections, when you see these comments, like people are like, "Ah, oh, yeah, sure, you just sit around, he'll get a job paying what whatever tens of thousands. He'll read books all day and he'll write write a few articles." Like, but like there isn't even those jobs. Like even if that was like the career path, like you know, um, and people are giving out about that, like it doesn't even exist anymore. Like, mm-hmm. um, it's, yeah. yeah, like a friend of mine, like. I've known her for five years and every year that I've known her, she moves countries because like she gets a job in Scotland and then she gets a job in Ireland and then she Mm -hmm. gets a job in New York and then she gets like, and she's married and like her husband has an actual position. He's got tenure. He can stick around. She can't like, so how are they supposed to manage that? And then like on the other end of it, even going into it, I have other friends who like are due to start their PhD this year. And one friend in particular is supposed to do it abroad and is quite nervous 
for COVID, but doesn't feel like she has even the right to ask for a deferral because she's like, well, I'll never get funding again. Like, this is it. So it's like, it's not as if it's even contained where it's like, oh, there's a rough period, but then you're grand. It's like start to finish and beyond. Like, it's all, it's all problems all the way down. But like, yeah, it's just like, it seems to me that it's just like, it's not even about, like, obviously it's about the, you know, getting paid and stuff like that. But like, even within the, like my friend who's part of this campaign and stuff like that, who, who's a PhD, um, like he was saying that a lot of these PhDs who are lecturing don't have like office space, don't have even a desk designated to them at all. You know, that's just like out of the question. Paternity, maternity leave out of the question as well. You don't have any sort of rights like that. Apparently, if you get pregnant you have to take a leave of absence and not get paid for it um like it's just so precarious in that way and he was also saying that like a lot of it is based on like very kind of informal um systems of you know if you know people as well maybe you'll be more likely to get paid for those hours or something like that and kind of like how can it just be so like um unorganized and like just it's like this is how these like huge issues happen like people fall through the cracks and stuff like that and like you were saying, Jack, about like even like the preparation it takes to just do one hour of lecturing a week, you know, that's like a lot. And also my friend was saying that because like a lot of these PhD people are doing um, like one on ones and like tutorials and stuff like that and kind of like working closely with the students that they also like experience a lot of students coming to them with like issues or like mental health problems. And like they're kind of there as like, like you say, like the, the kind of front person who kind of speaks to these people, these students. Um, and they're not equipped for that. They're not trained for it. You know, it's just like, this is supposed to be like them learning, but they're just thrown in at the deep end and they um, are not paid. And like, I just, I, how can they imagine like this is any way going to be sustainable? I don't know. Like, obviously it's worked for them so far, but like, I just, it's, yeah. I, I think as well, like well, two things. One, I think I'd be remiss in not mentioning that However bad it is for Irish PhDs, it's a hell of a lot worse for anyone outside the EU because I have a, a number of friends who are PhDs coming from from outside the EU. They're paying higher fees. They have all sorts of problems with the Irish immigration system, which, like, the appointment system in the Irish immigration system is not only broken, it's been broken in about three different ways in the last five years. Um, They just keep changing the way that it's broken. So, like, they're going through all of this incredible stress and strain to you know what pay extra fees and teach for you know low mm. rates um but the other thing i'd say is that like and this goes back to something you said at the start which is just that like the reason why everyone does this is because like i love teaching i absolutely love teaching and uh, it's really satisfying and it's great and i'd love if i was being paid like it's pathetic to think of how many of us would be grateful to be paid minimum wage like a minimum wage contract to just teach or just re- just do research. Some people are more attuned to the research side of it. And for a lot of people, you know, it's, it's like a dream job. And I think that's one of the things that's most insidious about it because mm-hmm. like the way that in the music industry or in the literary industry, people will do enormous amounts of work for free because they desperately want to do the job. That is what academia resembles. And I think in the eyes of the public, it's more like something like law or medicine, where it's like a vocational course that, ah, you take your knocks, but then you'll get your job. It's more like trying to be a successful rock band. And like, you have approximately the same amount of chance of success at the end of it as well. Yeah. 
And like, what what are the like the demands? Like, you know, so like you say there, like, well, look, if I even got minimum wage, like, but I mean, like that's that's a, like I a mean, minimum it's, demand, yeah, like you know, you know our demands are <laughs> modest. We only want the earth. But exactly. Like, yeah. uh, I I would say like I'm I'm not a a part of the. Uh, the specific THD, uh, TCD PhD workers rights group, although they're, they're doing really good work, but I just haven't been in contact with them in, in a while. So I'm not certain what their specific demands are right now, but, um, you know, a friend of mine was saying the other day um, that she's from Switzerland and she was just saying, look, the system in Switzerland is not perfect. Switzerland is hardly like a left-wing workers paradise, but you're just employed as a researcher. You know, and I think, um, Dave, you might have mentioned that it was the same in Sweden, that you are connected to a university, you're employed as a researcher, you're paid, you know, a salary. It may be modest, but it's a salary and you are connected to all of the systems in the university. You're getting a pension, you're you're have access to HR, to, you know, dispute resolution, to a union, to all of these kind of things. And I think that's I mean, I don't know what other people's demands are. That would be my main demand. You know, acknowledge yourself as a worker and get recognised as a worker. Mm-hmm. There is a petition mm-hmm. as well that has been set up by a couple of these groups. Um, so we'll also link that in the description bio here. They've also written an open letter to the universities and stuff like that. Um, I think, yeah, th- th- kind of like it all puts it into perspective when you look at the salary of like the um, head of Galway University compared to like he's on something like 200 grand a year or something like that, you know, and then these actual people who are actually doing the work like don't even yeah but anyway again swallowing my rage it's all okay everything's good <laughs> you have to take about three hours before you try and go to sleep tonight. yeah literally <laughs> why do we record this at night time <laughs> so say watch that soothing leo varadkar tiktok that just got put up oh, that really, that, that really yeah. put me at ease today you know it's very good. His <laughs> smug face like makes it. It's pretty. <laughs> Sorry, Roshin, were you I plugging think... plugging the Patreon there, or was that? Uh... Yeah, I was gonna say. I think we should uh, divert some of the Patreon funds to buy Jesse some bath bombs and scented candles. So, oh, brilliant! If you at okay. home want to help great. ease her rage, <laughs> ideal. <laughs> yet, yet, yet more corruption and graft in the uh, the Patreon business. Oh, yeah, we're full of it here. Don't worry, Jack. You're you're new to it all. <laughs> <laughs> these microphones they're <laughs> cardboard we 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 pocketed all the money <laughs> right okay um i think we're gonna have to leave it there because we're running out of time but thank you very much for everyone um all the points tonight and thank you very much to jack especially for coming on um it was it's great to have you me. on and yeah we'll link some of your articles as well so people can read your some of your stuff um and maybe your twitter or something uh, maybe like that oh yeah know. god help us if you'd like to follow me i'm at yule goat y-u-l-e-g-o-a-t although i've been trying to be on twitter less recently very but Christmassy. Tr- trying and failing. <laughs> yeah, it's a very long story. But anyway. Okay, okay. Another time then. So, um, okay, yeah. Thanks everyone so much for listening at home. And yeah, if you haven't looked at the Patreon yet, do have a look if you're uh, in any way want to support us and keep the podcast going, keep it building stronger and stuff like that. Uh, want to be a part of the community, then you can sign up there. Um, yeah, thanks everyone again for um, listening and we will see you the same time next week. Bye. No one else says bye. Okay. <laughs> no, we're already cold hearted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>